Um, that's the point. Now, um, a couple thoughts before we actually get into the lesson I want to mention. Um, the church, the Catholic Church, has its dogma, its doctrines, its traditions. Um, but when you're out visiting, don't be surprised if you come across um, Catholics that don't adhere to all the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, for example, the Catholic Church is strongly against abortion. It's against homosexuality, as a, uh, a couple examples. And there are um, Catholics that are pro-abortion and, and for homosexuality. They don't see anything wrong with it. So even though we're going to be coming, uh, covering some of the beliefs, the doctrines of the Catholic Church, don't let it throw you uh, if you should be talking, witnessing to a Catholic and their beliefs don't match up with uh, those of the Catholic Church. Um, I think, from my experience, this is more a new phenomenon. Um, years ago, um, the Catholics were, um, they followed the teachings of the Church much more closely as a group than I think what they do now. So uh, I wanted to mention that to you, so don't let that fact throw you. Um, when you're witnessing to um, a Catholic. Um, I also want to mention um, at the outset that there are a number of beliefs that the Catholic Church has um, that is similar to ours. Okay, There's some commonality there. Um, they believe that, uh, for instance, they believe that the uh, Bible is the inspired word of God and that it's infallible, as we do. Um, they believe in the Trinity, as we do. Um, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They believe in these things. So there's a number of beliefs that um, we share with Catholics, and there's a plus side to this. this so when you talk to a Catholic there's commonality in belief, and I believe this commonality can make someone you're witnessing to feel more comfortable. You're not coming at them with something that's completely foreign. There are things that we have in common, and bringing these things up in discussion, I think, can sometimes make uh, a Catholic feel um, more at ease um, when uh, talking to you. Um, However, there's also the downside of this commonality, um, especially when it comes to salvation. Um, we have to, because they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, um, for us, that's the beginning and end of our salvation, right? Our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. However, that's not the case with Catholics. So there's a splitting of hairs where we have this commonality where they're going to agree with us, but only to a point. And so now it can be sometimes difficult to come in there as a soul winner and explain to them thoroughly where there is that difference, okay, uh, between what the church teaches and exactly what the Bible teaches. So it's kind of a, this commonality in beliefs is really a two-edged sword, okay? So I wanted to mention that. 
Um, also about Catholics. Catholics, um, in some Catholic homes, you're in a home, some of them may have a Bible. Now, uh, not as many as you used to. Used to you go into a Catholic's home and they'd have a big family Bible on their coffee table. It's been my experience that um, you see this less and less. Um, having said that, their Bible is going to be different than our King James Bible. They have their own version uh, of the Bible, the Reams Dewey Bible, it's um, it's taken from different manuscripts uh, than our King James, and it is different. Um, it has the books of the Apocrypha in it, as a, as an example. Um, however, um, again, with this idea of commonality, there's been times where I've been sitting in a, in a Catholic's home. They have the their big family Bible on the um, coffee table, and I would actually use their own Bible to witness to them. So there is enough truth in a Catholic Bible for someone to get saved. So for me, the idea, I'm going to use their own Bible so they don't think I'm pulling out something like the Watchtower or something that's foreign to them. Uh, but be aware, it, the verses do read different, and they, their, um, book has, their Bible has extra books in it. Um, now, just because Catholics have a Bible, Catholics don't read their Bible. Um, there's the joke within the Catholic community, that's what we pay the priest for, right? And he tells us what it says on Sunday when we go to Mass, right? So, and this is something to keep in mind that you're, it's going to be very, very unlikely that um, when you're visiting with a Catholic that they know more Scripture than you. I know uh, sometimes people are in, in, uh, intimidated, let's say, if a Mormon comes to the house or a Jehovah Witness. And I think, speaking for myself years ago, you know, it was because I thought they knew more scripture than me, and I wasn't going to be able to answer their questions or, or, uh, to, or defend my own position well enough. And so it, would, it made me um, reluctant to talk to them. But I'm here to tell you, Catholics, we do not read our Bibles. And even uh, the priest. And uh, I'll give you a quick example. Um, back in the 70s, I was working at a, in a factory, and we played a lot of trivia, usually the obvious topics of sports and movies, TVs, things like that. But there was a, um, a guy there um, who was Church of Christ, okay, and he asked me a Bible question. And I thought, Church of Christ. Well, yeah, it's just, at least back in my days, um, Catholics, we looked down on Protestant ch churches. They were little. They were Mickey Mouse. We had cathedrals. We had basilicas, right? Uh, we were the largest church in the world. And, you know, there was an arrogance uh, to Catholics. Um, so he asked me a question. Well, being a good Catholic, I didn't read my Bible, and so I went to ask my priest uh, for the answer, and my and the question was, who is the physician in in the Bible, or who is Jesus's physician? And um, so my priest didn't know, 
but uh, he told me to come back, you know, next next week, and he would talk to me about. It. And even then, after having a week, and all the material he, he had at his disposal, and all the other priests he could have talked to, or perhaps the bishop, he st- still couldn't tell me that it was Philip, or oh, I'm sorry, Luke, who was the physician in the New Testament. But this guy I worked with did. And that was the first time where I started to question some problem. Wow, this kid I'm working with in this factory, he knows more about the Bible than my priest. So I mentioned that to be an an encouragement to you that um, the Catholics, you're not going to find a Catholic that's going to stump you on Scripture. Okay, so take heart in that. Um, Okay, so... uh, so I want. So let's uh, go, go to the next slide. Okay. This is Mother Teresa. I don't know how many of you know of her. Um, she was a nun, a missionary um, to India, and she served the Catholic Church in Calcutta. India, which, if you know anything about that area, some of the poorest, uh, one of the poorest places on earth, a terrible place, an unsanitary place, just an awful, awful place. And um, uh, Mother Teresa, at the age of 18, she uh, became a nun, and a number of years after that, she moved um, to India and started serving the Lord there. Um, and she did this um, for 69 years. She served the Lord in the worst conditions um, for all those years. And in all that time, it said that there was only one period of five weeks that she took off in 69 years. So this was an extremely dedicated Catholic. And she died, um, I think, in, okay, 79? No, that's when she got the Nobel Prize. I'm sorry. Uh, 97. Um, And in 2016, she was canonized. Now, canonized is the expression that Catholics use for when someone is declared a, a saint. Okay? So, uh, probably the most prominent nun, uh, at least the most sacrificial nun that certainly I've ever known in my lifetime. And near the end of her life, she wrote a book with some of her thoughts. Uh, and she put them down in letters. There were actually things from letters. And I want to have us look at what she wrote near the end of her life. Where is my faith? Even deep down, right in, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. It pains without ceasing. I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. So many unanswered questions live within me. I am afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. So 
you know, this woman just, I don't know anyone who's, you know, sacrificed more to live in such filth. There were times where while she was trying to get those poor kids fed that she would go hungry, where she would have to beg for food and to do it for almost 70 years. And at the end of it all, she's not even sure if there is a God. And she has no faith. And there was, there was nothing there for her at the end. You know, she had no joy in her heart um, because she didn't know the Lord. She wasn't a saved person, right? And this is the whole matter of, uh, of this woman's life. I have no faith. And the blasphemy, when she talks here um, near the bottom where it says, so many questions live within me, I am afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. What she's talking about here, she has so many questions, but she's afraid to look for those answers. What are the answers to all these questions because of the blasphemy? She's not talking about blasphemy against God, against Jesus, against the Holy Spirit. She's talking about blasphemy against the church. Okay? So, I wanted to put this out here at the forefront to give you a sense of the emptiness that can be in the Catholic Church, even for a woman that has been declared a saint and has given her life to serving the Lord. Okay? So. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit here at the beginning now, the hierarchy um, of the Catholic Church. Like I said, the Catholic Church is huge and it's complex. And um, they have hierarchies. Um, and as you can see here at the bottom, um, it talks about the laity. Now, the, la- the laity are people like me, people like you. They are just the, the Catholics that go to Mass and live a Catholic life, right? They've been baptized. Uh, they've been confirmed. They've uh, received you know, their first communion and so on. They are not ordained or hold any office. They're just the people that go to, go to Mass. And then the first position of being ordained, now there are monks, but leaving those aside, which are really a little bit below the deacons. Deacons, they are ordained, but these men aren't really in training to move up to the next level of priests. They want to be servants, and that's really what they are. They get ordained, but they cannot perform the sacraments, the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. For instance, they can't hold mass, and they can't uh, hear confession, and they can't administer last rites, okay? Um, so they are there really as being assistants to the priest, um, perhaps in, in, in when the priest is having mass, to assist in them in some of the things that go on, uh, you know, up front. Um, choir boys uh, will also be used in this capacity. But, so the deacons, they're ordained, but um, they have no real authority. Uh, okay, and the priest, that's who we're most, uh, most familiar with, the priest. Oops, I'm supposed to be doing something here. Bear with me. Yeah. Okay, deacons. Sorry, 
my bad. And then priest. Now, one of the things, you know, we're probably all familiar with priests dressed in black with a collar that's white, just in the front, a little square, one by one square. Um, and that's their walking around clothes, okay? When they are serving in a uh, official capacity, like holding mass, they wear what are called their vestments, right? And they have their robes and their shawls, and um, there's a lot of options uh, for them, as you'll see as we go forward. But uh, when they are serving in an official capacity, they put on their, um, their vestments, okay? So think of this as, when we go here, to a, the bishops. And again, they have a lot of different looks. It's almost like being in the military where you could be a Marine, but you have several different uniforms that you would wear depending on the occasion. And it's like that here. Now, the priests, um, they're the ones that are, you know, that are generally going to be holding mass for you in a local church. Okay? The bishops just above them, the bishops have authority over a given area, um, a diocese. Okay, which is um, a small area. Uh, there'll be a number of churches in it sometimes. And the bishop is more of the administrator of those churches and um, in, that, in a small area where above him we have the archbishops. And they are going to be over. It's similar. Uh, they're administrators. And, of course, they hold mass and special occasions and things. But... Um, uh, archbishops would be like we have an archbishop in St. Louis. You're going to have an archbishop in Boston or New York, large cities or large ge geographical areas. And that's really the distinction between the bishops and the archbishops. And then above them, you have your cardinals. Oops. Here's. Oh, yeah, I didn't put up a picture for archbishop. That's right. And then, so... Yeah, this was Cardinals. I'm sorry, my bad. You see the fish hat? That's my bad. I'm sorry. Um, cardinals. Now, the Cardinals, one of the um, um, responsibilities they have that the others don't is the Cardinals are who votes for the Pope. Okay, that distinguishes them above um, all the others. Okay? they. So it will be... It doesn't have to be, but traditionally, the Pope is going to be um, come from the group of cardinals, okay? And they are the ones that will vote. And it's interesting, um, I don't know if you've ever watched when a new Pope was being voted on, but there's a particular window at the Vatican, which is, of course, that's the center of the Catholic Church, um, the head of it there in Rome, and they have their own, the Holy See, uh, or Vatican City, and there's a particular window in a, in a particular building when, when they're taking votes, um, when they have a pope, when they've decided on the pope, they will actually release white plumes of smoke out of this particular window because people are going to be gathered there uh, around the basilica in that in the courtyard there, and they're all waiting to see this white smoke, which indicates to them that a new pope has been um, elected. And then, of course, we have your pope, um, right? He's, he's the supreme authority um, of the church. And Catholics believe that 
Each pope here right, uh, is a successor of the Apostle Peter. They believe that the Apostle Peter was the very first pope, okay, and that all of them uh, subsequently have been his successors, okay, and he is the, uh, obviously the authority above everyone else within the Catholic Church. His his word is really law. Okay. Um, a couple other things I wanted to mention about their characteristics. Um, for instance, deacons, although they're, they're ordained, they can be married. All right? They don't have to be married, but they can be married. Priests cannot, okay, typically. Now, there are exceptions. Sometimes there have been people over the years that were married, then became Catholics, and became priests. But if you're not married and you, you're a priest, you're not allowed to marry, Okay. Um, so I want to mention that. Uh, let's see. Okay, so we'll go on. Now, oh, and the question then is, why can't the priest marry? Well, the priests, they don't marry because Jesus wasn't married. Okay, so they're emulating Jesus in that way. That's the whole reason for it. Okay, um, now I wanted to mention nuns. Now, um, nuns, um, they take a vow. Um, they're not, they don't have authority like um, priests and bishops and archbishops, okay? But nuns, and there are nuns and sisters. Now, nuns, a lot of times they are called, um, well, I guess I got some of this. I should probably just read that. Uh, nuns and sisters take a vow of celibacy. Um, and you'll notice that they wear a wedding ring because they actually have a wedding ceremony where they marry Jesus, okay? Nuns live, some distinctions between the sisters and the nuns. Uh, nuns live a cloister like, like in a monastery, okay? While the sisters don't. The sisters live out in the public. In fact, my in-laws have two sisters living next to them. Uh, a nun's vows are a little more stringent than those of the sisters. Um, however, both nun and sisters are used, the term sister, a lot of times um, people will use the term sister referring to a nun, but there is actually uh, a distinction be between the two. And they take their vows of poverty, of chastity, and obedience, okay? But they don't have um, any authority. They're there to serve, they're there to uh, uh, pray and live this, um, you know, with this life of chastity and poverty and obedience. Now, um, now there's been a number of famous um, nuns over the years, and does, does anyone want to guess who the most famous nun is? No one has a guess? Well, that's a. <laughs> there we go. Very good. Sister Batril is clearly the most famous of all the nuns. Right. Excellent. All right. So. All right. So that's. All right. So. Um, 
everything, you know, the Pope is the head, and what he says goes. So I want to take some time in discussing the Pope, okay? Um, so uh, the Pope, he has a lot of titles. There are a lot of names uh, in which uh, the Pope goes by. Uh, the Bishop of Rome. So the, uh, the Pope needs to be a bishop. So he's the Bishop of Rome. Rome, of course, the center of the Catholic Church, the Vicar of Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that's an important title because Vicar, in this instance, talks about substitute. So the Catholic Church feels that after Jesus ascended um, and that he had passed, let's say, the torch um, onto Peter, that Peter and all the subsequent um, popes are Jesus's substitute here on earth, not the Holy Spirit, like we believe, right? That comforter that was going to come after Jesus left, he was going to send the Holy Spirit, right? But they believe that the Pope is the vicar or substitute for Jesus on earth. Uh, let's see. The successor of the Prince of the Apostles, and they believe the Prince of the Apostles is, of course, Peter. Supreme Pontiff of the Prince of the Apostles, again, Peter, Primate of Italy. Um, Archbishop, and, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the State of Vatican City, and Sovereign of the Servant of God, which is Peter. Uh, Vatican City, it's, it's interesting, I'll point out that Vatican City, where, uh, which is where the center of uh, the Catholic Church is, is its own country. Um, it's only um, 100 acres, something like that. It's very small, but it is actually the smallest state or country in the world. So they will have, like, some military people, I don't want to say they're going out fighting battles, but people that guard the Pope and currency, and they can issue passports and things like that. So, um, and no other religion has something to that effect where they are their own country. All right? So, they got the titles of the Pope. Now, uh, we're going to talk about properly addressing the Pope. Okay? And I'll give you reasons for this while we're looking at these type of things uh, in a minute. So, um, when the Pope enters the room, right, um, we're supposed to stand up and you applaud, you know, politely. You address him by one of his proper names. You, you can call him, um, and I should have put this on the slide, like your excellency or your most holy father, okay, or your holiness. Okay, these are all names that apply to uh, the Pope when you're addressing him. Also, uh, you don't kiss his hand, really. I, I should have changed that. So you kiss his ring. The Pope wears a, a very specific ring, a special ring. It's the fisherman's ring, okay? And this, of course, um, refers back to Peter. And Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And all these popes are the successors of Peter. So you would um, take his hand, if he extends it, and kiss his ring. When you talk to him, you want to be clear and concise. When you uh, you don't want to, you know, be rambling and you know just off the cuff when you meet the Pope, okay? And of course, if he stands up to leave, you need to stand up also, and your attention should stay focused on him until he leaves uh, the room. 
Okay? So, just in case, I mentioned this just in case we're out at the Waffle House down here in Festus. Pope comes in. We want to know, you know, how we, how we should behave. All right, now, um, here we got some pictures of the Pope with w- leaders of other religions, okay? And it's significant that um, leaders of other religions seek this audience with the Pope. He is that important. He is that powerful that even though they have different beliefs, like you hear a Muslim, right, they still seek an audience with the Pope, okay? And here we can see uh, pictures of world leaders that are uh, seeking an audience with the Pope. And you can see here in the middle picture, uh, that's the um, queen and king of Spain, that the queen is, is curtsying down and kissing the ring uh, of the Pope. Uh, so you see, like, uh, there's Putin and Merkel and Trudeau and Queen Elizabeth and President Obama. Now, um, the point of me showing you this is to give you a sense of how powerful and how important the Pope is, even to non-Catholics. And when you have the heads of state um, looking to meet with you, when you have leaders of completely different religions seeking an audience with you, that should give us a sense of how important that, how influential the Pope is in this world. Okay, now we're going to talk a little bit now about uh, some of the characteristics of the Pope. And the thing that um, you may hear from Catholics is the infallibility of the Pope, okay? Now, um, the Pope is infallible concerning doctrines of faith and morals of the church. And and you'll see the word ex cathedra there, which means from the throne. And it's referring to, back again to Peter, from the throne of Peter. Again, all this um, succession has been transferred down over uh, the 2,000 years. So when the uh, Pope speaks in ex cathedra, and that this doctrine, this belief that when the, of speaking in ex cathedra, that was established at the First Vatican Council in 1870. Okay, just the belief that when the Pope speaks in ex cathedra, what he says is absolutely right, okay? It's going to be um, right to the point, this has to be obeyed. This is a a church truth, a a church doctrine. And not only when the Pope is speaking in ex cathedra, is he always going to be right. It's not even possible for him to be wrong. That's how strong this idea of speaking in ex cathedra is that it's not even possible because he is being fully controlled by, by the Holy Spirit, by God, and all this is flowing down to him from God. So it's not even possible for him to make a mistake when he speaks in ex cathedra. Now, there's only been really one time that the Pope spoke in ex cathedra, and that um, dealt with Mary. Um, 
and her assumption, body and soul, into heaven. Um, the Catholic Church plays, puts a lot of emphasis on Mary um, in some serious ways. They really have her just below Jesus in some instances. Okay? And in, um, so uh, the Pope, speaking in Ex Cathedra, said that Mary, when she died, her body and soul immediately went straight to heaven. Okay? Um, that she didn't die going to the go- ground and just her soul go to heaven, but body and soul, she ascended up into heaven. Okay? Um, so, uh, now, for something, there's some criteria. For uh, a priest or for a pope, when he is speaking in ex cathedra, it has to uh, uh, agree with, it has two criteria. Um, it must agree with the settled doctrine of the church or the traditions of the church, okay, and agree with the Holy Scriptures, okay? So you can't violate those two uh, things and still be considered speaking infallibly, okay? Okay, so the first pope. The first pope was not Peter, okay? And this picture here, that's not Peter either. That's, that's Bob, who lives down the street from me, and he just dresses funny, okay? So this isn't Peter either, all right? It's not, but now, it's important. The idea that Peter was the first pope is critically important to the Catholic Church because everything rests on that, all right? If Peter wasn't the first pope, then there's not this succession of popes up until today. So it's, that's really the foundation where the um, Catholic Church believes, according to Matthew uh, 16, 13 through 18, where Jesus declared um, Peter, the Apostle Peter, as he's going to be the one, the foundation on which his church is built after he leaves heaven. Right? So we see Matthew, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, un, said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the, the Catholic Church believes this declaration um, by Jesus when he says... Um, upon this rock that it, um, he is referring to the apostle Peter. And it's, and this is what the church is going to be built on, okay? His church. And so this is criti- cri- critically important to them. But I think we understand that here in this verse, Jesus, he didn't say, upon you, Peter, I am building my church. Right? 
he, Jesus, is referring to the statement that Peter had just made, that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he's talking about. Nowhere in this verse does it say, upon you will I build this church. But the Catholic Church believes that this is what's being implied here. Okay? So we're going to take a look at a number of verses that talk about Jesus being the chief cornerstone or the stumbling block or the rock of his church. Okay? Because um, this is very important. That we, we should be able to defend this in Scripture um, because this is something that could come up when uh, talking with a Catholic. Okay? So, okay. Now, First Peter. Now, how almost ironic we're using a, a verse from Peter, right, to address this issue. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth him shall not be confounded, right? And we know that to be Jesus, right? Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be obedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And, the, and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, okay? And we know this to be referring to Jesus, is that, that stumbling stone that uh, rock of offense to unbelievers, okay? Okay, next. Okay, Ephesians, okay? Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay, Psalm 118. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Again, you see this term about the stone, the cornerstone, being repeatedly used throughout Scripture. And it is not referring to the Apostle Peter. Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion. Again, we're hearing this over again. For a foundation, a stone, a tritone, a, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, prophesying about our Lord and Savior. Okay, and Romans 9. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, hath attained to righteousness? even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, had not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, 
and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. And lastly, I think, uh, where, uh, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which builded his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. I read back up to where he's referring to. Someone, Jesus is speaking here, right? And he's talking about someone that heareth the sayings and do the things that he's talking about, right? He's not talking about Peter. And I think we do have one more. So hurry on. Just wait. Okay. So, 1 Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. And did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. It was not Peter. Okay? So this is really important. I know I gave you a lot of verses. And... um, so we should memorize in some of these verses, especially this one I really like, because it clearly states it was Christ was the rock. So, um, yeah. And I think that's all for tonight. So just an overview, a little bit about the structure of the church, uh, a little bit about the Pope, and uh, then leading into uh, about Peter because um, he is so foundational uh, for the um, Catholic Church. And then uh, subsequent lessons will start getting into their beliefs um, as compared to ours, and then um, how we can um, perhaps better witness to them. So that's all.